the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Welcome along to the Enter Sad Men podcast, episode 58, if you will. Um, good to have your company, as always. My name's Steve, and I am with my two great chums, Mark and Richard. The three of us poised to add another three albums to the hallowed Enter Sad Men Hall of Fame, which you can see in all its glory at our website, entersadmen.co.uk. Um, so, yeah, we review these albums, we do, we rate them track by track, um, and then we rank them in our Hall of Fame, which, given that we've already done 57 episodes and we do three per show, means it has 171 albums in it. Some where you'd expect them to be, others perhaps not. But, you know, we're doing this objectively. It's the track-by-track thing that sets us apart. Bags of passion, no bias, um, and we absolutely believe that the albums we've reviewed so far are where they should be. And this episode, episode 58, the theme was about flying things, uh, things that fly, um, but it's since been renamed Angels and Towers, and, and that's kind of by accident. Mark, you might want to explain how this accident unfolded, because we weren't specifically looking for either Angels or Towers, but it just so happened. No, we weren't, and it happened because the three of us, coincidentally, not planned, all ended up choosing albums that or bands that had the word Angel in them, and coincidentally, because that's the way this thing rolls, two of them have a track that mention a tower, and one of them has an album cover that has, well, something approximately <laughs> on the cover. So there you go. It was Angels and Tangles. That's how we got to that. But, it, but yeah, what Tico said we had to do was things that fly. Yeah, things that fly. Nice and loose. That gave us lots of scope. And obviously, then we just all hit upon the same seam. Who knew? So, come on, then tell, tell us what you're doing, Mark. Which album you're going to be, uh, we're going to be reviewing on episode 58 is... Is 1980's Angel Witch debut. Now, I, I feel like I, I have to explain or justify this, qualify it, because it's a very important album, which doesn't necessarily mean it's a good album, mm. although... Personally, I think it, it it is, but it doesn't. The fact that it's important in the sort of the history of the genre doesn't necessarily translate into it's a ten out of ten album. It's important. Angel Witch were important. I think, generally speaking, most people would probably say that without Angel Witch or Met- uh, Angel Witch or Diamond Head, you wouldn't have Metallica. So. Yeah, fairly significant band. Is the album any good? We'll find out. Well, that's exactly what you you made that point about Metallica, didn't you? And my ears pricked up as soon as you uh, as soon as you mentioned that on our WhatsApp conversation. So uh, that's been an interesting listen. Evening, Richard. You all right? Yes, very good. Thank you. Excellent. So, where did Angels and Towers take you? Well, it it, it took me exploring I, on the flying things. I early on got a couple of bankers uh, in bands that we know and love, and I thought, okay, well, I. We've, but we've done them before. I could come back to those. And then I went to exploring. Um, and I discovered this album, this debut album, by the band Angel, it self-titled debut from 1975. Gave it a good old listen and thought, why the hell have I never heard this before? Because I think it's absolutely brilliant. So, yeah, so Angel's debut album. Steve, last week you said I want some thrash next week. <laughs> you you gave yourself some thrash, didn't you? I, I did, I did. And you kind of narrowed the parameters with your two angels, which kind of said, 
that kind of pushed me down a cul-de-sac that could only end one way, and that was Death Angel. So that's where I went, and uh, their debut album from 1987, The So that's whetted your appetite, I dare say. We do these things in chronological order. We always have. So that means we start with this week's wild card, very much a wild card, a band I'd, I think I'd heard the name, but wasn't obviously sure. And then having seen what I've seen on sort of YouTube and reviews and everything, you know, they were quite a big deal. This is Angel we're talking about. And, um, yeah, slipped off my radar. And, um, Richard, you've had a good look at them and their debut album. What do you make of it? Opening album sleeve notes. It was right up my street. So, yeah, Angel um, formed somewhere around mid-70s. They were playing on the club scene and uh, were discovered in a nightclub by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley of Kiss uh, and eventually signed to Casablanca Records. Yeah, they so they went pretty much straight into the studio and, uh, and released this uh, self-titled debut on October the 27th, 1975. It was produced uh, by two guys, Derek Lawrence and Big Jim Sullivan. Uh, runs to a little over 37 minutes. It's very progressive. There's a lovely balance. But I'm sure we'll talk more about uh, the, the detail shortly. Frank Domino on lead vocals. Punky Meadows, um, who's sort of the main, I guess, front man and, and voice of, of Angel on lead and acoustic guitars. Uh, Greg Jiffra on uh, organ, piano and various other long list of uh, keyboard instruments. Mickey Jones on bass and Barry Brandt on drums. What one person we hold in very high regard who has put this album on his personal top 10 albums of all time and said it, it was this was the one that he felt was the most underrated and none other than Dave Mustaine of Megadeth. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see if you two agree with me and Dave. Uh, I loved it. Fabulously proggy. I think the vocals are just out of this world. There is one track on this album where they've got about eight different bands playing. You've got, there's Budgie, there's Genesis, there's Rush, there's loads of bands 
in there that you can hear. So you can see where the influences are. But um, no, I really loved it. Thought it was great. Really good album. Yeah, you say it's kind of textbook seventies, and it is. There's an awful lot of eighties in there as well. It's just synth fantastic isn't it i mean it's just such a i did type angel band into uh, google images and to add to richard's point it's quite disturbing what comes up it's an absolute snow flurry i played golf today on my own because i don't have any friends and i ran through this and i've been listening to it all week and i ran through it again about three times and i am still not entirely sure quite what to make of it and i know i don't dislike it because there's too many good tunes too many good melodies and there's too much niceness to listen to but I don't know if I love it, and I still don't know quite what I think of it. You know, I like my prog, and I like my AOR, and I like my synth rock, and they've just tried to do the whole lot in, in, in one fell swoop. I know this was their first album, and they're sort of, you know, they're trying to sort of find their way, I guess, and trying to find their place. Interestingly, if you listen to interviews with Punky Meadows, you'd think they were the greatest band ever, that, you know, they were Journey, even before they'd started. He's so OTT. But hand on heart, if I'm... Brutally honest, there's only one track on here that I, I really, really like, which is a hell of a lot, which I think is quite a disappointing return. Um, there aren't any tracks on here I don't like at all, but I've got this maelstrom of stuff going around in my head because it's such a kind of cluttered album, I think. There's, there's, there's just crazy, crazy loads going on here. And I, I, listen, I'll be chopping and changing my track scores as we go through this. I know I will. And that's where I am with this album. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. It's a great choice. And if that was me saying that, Steve, this is the point at which you would be saying, you'd be leaning into your camera and you'd be saying, but it's prog. Yeah. Of course it's, of course it's a mess. Yeah. yeah, I get that. I do get that. Yeah. Let's talk about the tracks. There are eight tracks, four on each side. Uh, side one, Tower, Long Time, Rock and Rollers and Broken Dreams. And side two, Mariner, Sunday Morning, On and On, and the theme from angel so uh, let's give it a listen and uh, see where we get to So the album kicks off with Tower, as Mark said earlier, the sort of laser-like synths with all those sort of bass synth undertones immediately places this in the mid-70s, doesn't it? Those joined by big drums, big organ, I mean, very sort of deep purple uh, body to a lot of this stuff. And then drops into much more melodic rock. We'll be talking a lot about Frank Domino's vocals, because in different songs, he sounds like different singers, often many. On Tower, first line or two, I thought it might be Peter Gabriel singing. After this lovely melodic drop, it then picks up massively into an epic chorus. And I think it's quite a calling card. I mean, a really nice blend of melody, power, complexity. Um, One of the first songs they wrote as a band. 
I, I was instantly hooked. I love this to bits. Yeah, me too. Me too. I think it's a, an immense opening track, isn't it? Uh, as you say, a brilliant calling card. I think. Um, uh, I, I think this is an episode where I, at least, maybe you, but I am going to talk a lot about scale of ambition, particularly with Death Angel, but also to an, to an extent with Angel Witch, and certainly here because. I, I don't know where you start out as a band, even in 1975, where you've got this kind of cocktail of influences going on. Uh, at what point do you go, well, this is what we're going to be? And I think this just sets out a quite astonishing level of ambition. They don't maintain it, I have to say. Sometimes they get close to it. I think there are points on the album where they, they scale these heights again. But this is, a, I think, a massive track. I'm not entirely sure they knew quite what they wanted to be at this stage. They wanted to be the biggest band in the world, didn't they? I think that was that was the one constant. But stylistically, I'm not entirely sure they knew, really. I mean, there's so many different influences within this album anyway. That um, As for Tower, I don't share your, um, your enthusiasm for it, I have to say. It's interesting, the Peter Gabriel link, because the, the, immediately preceding that was a kind of quite a lot of Genesis piano a keyboard from from Jufra. so you know I, I liked that element of it i love the start i do love the start then when domino starts singing all very pleasant all repeated three minutes into this opening epic and it is seven minutes long folks three minutes in and so far so good but then it took to me it just starts going a bit downhill the solo is not great and that's not the only time i'll say that on this album doesn't seem to fit in really and it's all very well just sitting there and saying, yeah, it's prog, it's prog. So what doesn't fit in is perfectly acceptable because it's prog. Yeah, all right, but, you know, that's an old joke, isn't it? And I kind of started to – my interest started to wane a little bit. Um, so it's, it's a kind of okay start to me. Well, let's move on to track two, which is Long Time. Yeah, much more melodic second track. So you string synths or are they strings? Some of there's strings apparently on this, on this album. On this, Domino at times – God rest his soul sounds a bit like John Lawton. This again, straight after Tower, was similarly captivating uh, for me. I, I think Long Time is is brilliant. It's sort of melancholy, emotional. The production's beautifully spaced. When it moves into a second movement, well, after about two minutes, a sort of heavier guitar, guitar and organ playing in sync. In sync. I like the solo on this. <laughs> Be interested in what Steve thinks. Nice sort of sustained solo. Uh, bits of harpsichord, bits of flute. Uh, and then another big build and a big finish. I I think this is brilliant song. Yeah, ditto. And I get that kind of that sense of melancholy, that in, introspective kind of quality to it because it is very reflective. It's I think really nicely constructed. And there's that there's whether it's synths or not, who cares? There's a wonderful orchestral kind of feel about the whole song. I really like it. I think it's a really good track too, which probably means there's going to be some descent in the final quarter. No, no this is my track of the album. I actually adore this. I, I, the, those first couple of minutes, it's a, almost it's that kind of crawling, dreamy mix of, and I've Zep, I put Zeppelin, Blood Rock, and Uriah Heap. I just thought it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Loved it to bits. And then it came out, as you say, which is into that very different section, which is quite groovy, still very proggy. Mick Jones' bass work on this album, that's the outstanding. Excellent. Uh, the, and Meadows' guitar solo is is 
it's still not award-winning, but it's better than the opener. Um, <laughs> and and then they find their way back into that opening two minutes, with, into that string-led start through through what I think is a flute. You mentioned it, Richard. Um, and then Domino's pained vocals, trying to do his best Robert Plant. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. It's, it's by some distance the best track on there. All right, well, let's move on to three. Uh, and uh, that is a well, more straight-ahead rocker, isn't it? Rock and Rollers is, is, is track three. Yet another song about going to a gig. So this reminded me of Boston. There's a very broad guitar sound and the, 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 the main riff, plus then the Domino's voice over the top. Good song, straight ahead. Not as epic as the previous two. Little bit of cowbell at the end, which uh, obviously always uh, cherry on top, isn't it? So you're getting Boston, I'm getting Zeppelin. Uh, that, that riff is Misty Mountain Hop all day long, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes, yes. Uh, the ambition is scaled back a bit, which is a bit disappointing, maybe. Um, there's a bit of honky-tonk in here as well. It's fine. I think it's a perfectly decent track, but it doesn't excite me. Yeah, there is honky-tonk. There's some shocking piano in here. It's awful. But um, <laughs> also, Domino, you, you, t- you talk about the different singing styles of Domino. I've listened to this track through some buds and also on a set of really good headphones. So it's, yeah, I can't blame it on the equipment. He sounds like he's singing through a piece of guttering. I, I don't quite get what's happened to his voice. Listen, there's a good song in here somewhere. I do like the riff, but it's very straight ahead. And after the, after, mm. certainly after a long time, it's, um, yeah, it's pales in comparison yeah i think that's fair i think we're all agreed agreed on that um right so let's move on to to track four last track on side one which is called broken dreams i thought very again deep purple-esque start that sort of synced drum driven instruments up up and down and then it drops into quite a slower uh, tempo verse uh bass organ guitars or lay this very heavy bed to it a decent punky meadow solo in the middle and then again, Jifra's soaring keyboard at the end. So, again, not as good as the first couple of tracks for me, but I think the step up on uh, Rock and Roll is to finish the side. That's interesting. I think this is just a directionless mess. <laughs> there's loads of kind of Tony Banks-esque keyboards in it. So there's, you're getting kind of a hit of Genesis, I think. I don't think the band quite knows what this song is or where it's going. It just feels like... A sort of a slightly, slightly organised jam session, but I just think it's a bit of a mess, to be honest. Yeah, I agree. There's some. I think there's some. There's a mix on here of some really awful keyboards and some really good riffs. I like the riff, the main riff, and others within it. And you just want to say to them, you know, there's a rock element here. Just, just focus on that, lads. <laughs> just, just focus on that. Yeah. Because yeah. There's also a mid section yeah. here, which is fucking tragic when they goes a bit West End. But then they go back into the body of the song at the end, and it's good. It's proper punchy, um, and I love that element of it. And I'm sitting here again, not knowing what to give this score, what, what, how to score this one. But this this mm-hmm. track has troubled me more than most. You know, it's, it's a it's a five out of ten one minute. It's a eight out of ten another. It's really interesting. <laughs> Let's turn the album over and uh, onto side two. And uh, track one, side two is a very slow piano driven song called Mariner. Again, the strings, very sort of quiet start. Uh, then about halfway through the f- four minutes or so, uh, bass and drums come in. And then it, I mean, it builds, almost gets a bit super trampy, I felt, towards the end, uh, this track. <laughs> it's nicely arranged. I, I think it's a really good song, a good start to side to. 
You say Super Trampy at the, the end. I thought it was Super Trampy at the start. I thought he was going to start. As soon as I heard, heard that piano, I thought he said, take a look at my girlfriend. But um, it didn't happen. <laughs> this is fine. It's okay. I've not got a lot to say about it. First one on side two. Yeah. Yeah. Odd, odd, odd placing, but I know. Well, we are the experts in track, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I agree. I think it's a really odd choice to open side two. My first kind of thought when I put this on was, well, it's not Zayman by Ramstein, is it? And I thought, God, I, yeah, this is awful, actually. It's just a real dirge. And then as I've listened to it over the week, it's grown and grown and grown and grown. And actually, I think it's quite haunting. I think it's quite evocative. It's, it, it's not crowded. There's lots of space in it. It does go a bit Barry Manilow yeah. in the middle, <laughs> doesn't it? And you just think, oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it spoils it a, a bit. There's a bit of la 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 going on in it as well, which I'm not overly keen on. But, but on balance, yeah, I really like this song. Track six, uh, track two, side two is Sunday Morning. So they get a lot rockier again with this. Very guitar-driven. Again, Steve mentioned some really good bass work through through this album uh, from, from Mickey Jones. I'm getting some yes in this song, definitely in the keyboards, in the drums. And at times, Domino is uh, channeling his inner Anderson. Yeah, I, I think it's nicely written phrase. Uh, it, it's, I think it's uplifting, it's light, it's sunny. Uh, there's a lovely light, airy keyboard solo towards the end. I mean, at the end, uh, it, it sort of, there was heavy guitar accents come in and uh, then there's sort of this slowdown, not unlike Black Diamond by Kiss right at the very end. But yeah, I, uh, another good song for me. I don't, I don't like that ending at all. It's all very fairground, I must admit, which is a shame because the rest of the track's really good. I like that that, that backbeat um, and the bass line. I, I think actually Domino sort of channeling his Geddy Lee, is in a Geddy Lee a little bit on this mm-hmm. one. It is quite messy, but it's very listenable. Should have flip-flopped with Mariner. Would have made a far better um, first round. I'm with you, Steve. I, I think it's more it's more Geddy Lee than John Anderson. It's almost like it's almost like a super group with Geddy Lee on vocals and bass, and Rick Wakeman on keyboards, and then most of Budgie in the middle in, in at the beginning of it. I quite like it, but but for me, it's really just Genesis in a wig. <laughs> <laughs> but Punky Meadows, of course, thought they were a supergroup, didn't he? It was actually Adam when they were a supergroup. He said, I read a fascinating interview with him on YouTube. I don't know whether you saw it, a YouTube video interview with Punky Meadows. Yeah, the recent one. Yeah. yeah. You kind of figured out what he spent most of his money on, haven't you? Because he's, 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 he's so many faceless. He makes Sir Cliff looks like a bag of spuds. <laughs> Um, he's really done his work. But it, it, the overriding impression from the interview is that all he's saying is that they absolutely smashed all the bands they were supporting who all fired them to a band because they were just so damn good. And I'm thinking, did I miss these stories? I mean, I know, you know, I mean, surely this band would be in, in, in rock folklore, you know, but I, I dare say, you know, they upstaged one or two. But, yeah, he, he gives the impression that they were just off the scale, and I'm thinking, hmm. Okay, well, you've both referenced Rush in uh, Sunday Morning. For me, it's uh, on and on track seven that made me think of Fly By Night era Rush. The bass guitar, drums, uh, the riff, very much like uh, a Rush track, I would say. Rockier again, more basic again. I mean, ironically, for a, a track called On and On, 
it does get a bit repetitive, even for me. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a nice break in the middle around the guitar solo. Uh, again, more rushy, I think. It's okay, but amongst the weaker tracks on the album for me. Not being funny, Richard, but I wish you had subjected us to some rush because you've subjected us to three doses of rush so far, and I've loved two of them. So um, I'd have taken that over this. <laughs> no mistake. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this this, this is – what's this called – on and on it on and on yeah to me to me it's called to me it's called no and no it's like the beatles meets smoky meets kansas yeah not a good noise not a good noise and, and also what's those what's those kind of pseudo eastern vocal tumbles that he does it's just oh it's draining it's so draining um i i don't have a lot to add it's not a great moment on the album <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh track eight uh is uh the theme from or the angel theme which is a one minute 39 instrumental yeah one link between all of these albums tonight is that they have a very short instrumental piece to finish them uh we're not going to be judging this one it, it's short what can you say? It uh, it does feel tacked on the end. Uh, sort of minute and a half of bass, keyboards, drums, and some angelic vocal voices. I mean, what can you say? That's Angel and Angel, the first of our flying things, our angels and towers. Be interested in your highs and lows, gentlemen. Well, I mean, I, I can't have on and on. I mean, it just turn it off and off. Um, and long time, I think long time's genius. Beautiful track. I'd listen to that over and over again. Yeah, I didn't think On and On was was the worst track on the album. I think Broken Dreams was uh, got that for me. And Tower, I don't think you can see past the first track. Okay, and I'm with Steve uh, on highs and lows. So On and On is my low and long time my high. Right. Well, let's uh, we'll see where Angel's first album scores later. But we'd better move on to our second track. And we move decades just into the 1980s. And another debut album from another Angel band, another self-titled debut from Angel Witch and Mark. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, Angel Witch. London formed, formed in London back in about 1978, originally called Lucifer. Um, and in fact, they were called Lucifer when Kevin Hayborn, the, uh, the band's founder, wrote uh, the track Angel Witch, which has become a staple. In fact, Kevin Hayborn, in a, an interview that I read, said, that track is absolutely nailed to my back. I cannot escape, escape it. It is the final song to be played in every concert that they've ever done and at the beginning they used to do a europe and they opened with it and closed with it uh, in the same way that europe did with the final countdown um i think uh this album is uh, one of the kind of really important albums from the new wave of british heavy metal it is the album that sort of i think probably was a precursor it's not a thrash album so you know all of those references to metallica at the top of the show i, I think what what the album does is it kind of 
opens up a direction that Metallica then extended, uh, along with taking stuff from Diamond Head. But it's not a thrash album. Kevin Hayborn uh, is a self-proclaimed Sabbath nut, and there is a lot more about Sabbath in this album, I think, uh, about Metallica or, or the thrash movement. But it certainly, I think, opened the door for this sort of speedier style of metal that kind of was going to come sort of two or three years later the album cover i think is one of the most iconic in the genre it's taken um from a painting from the 18th century which is called fallen angels entering pandemonium which is based on the first book of john milton's paradise lost it's just a hellscape and quite evocative and it was on that basis that i bought the album back in 1981 Uh, i it took me a very 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 long time to get on with this album and i think that probably says a lot about the direction that the album takes it is not a standard classic new wave of british heavy metal album even though angel witch are regarded as one of the most important new wave of british heavy metal bands so um, let's go through some nuts and bolts as say formed in London, England in 1978. This album was released in December 1980. It was recorded in September, October of that year and released on the bronze record label. Interestingly enough, the first second single, first single, which was Sweet Danger, was actually released on EMI. And the band had been offered a deal by EMI, which they turned down. And they turned it down because Iron Maiden had just been signed to EMI and the manager, the Angel Witch management felt that the money was going to go to Maiden in terms of kind of the record label backing. And therefore, why would Angel Witch want to play second fiddle to them when they could command a lot more attention from another label? So they signed to Bronze uh, instead. Um, The album runs to 38 minutes, 20 seconds, produced by Martin Smith, upon whom I've managed to find no information whatsoever. It was done at the Roundhouse Studios in a matter of days rather than weeks. Followed up in 1985, there was a long gap between this and the second album, and the second album pretty much killed them. It's called Screaming and Bleeding. Um, all of that kind of gothic branding had gone. All of the heavy, oppressive, riff-driven music had gone. It was an absolute car crash. So Angel Witch, were, although they have, I think, five albums to their name, up to and including uh, their latest, which was released in 2019, this really is a one album band the personnel for this three-piece kevin hayborn on guitars and lead vocals kevin skids riddles on bass keyboards backing vocals and we'll be talking to kevin riddles about this album and his time in angel witch in a future episode so watch out for that and then dave hogg on drums it didn't chart here it didn't chart there over the atlantic and Who knows how many albums it sold. It's got 10 tracks. uh, Side one, Angel Witch, Atlantis, White Witch, Confused and Sorcerers. And then flip it over and you get Gorgon, Sweet Danger, Free Man, Angel of Death and Devil's Tower.
easier to get on with this album this time around interestingly enough i i warmed to it a lot more I, I liked it eventually back in the back in the day but i actually warmed to it this time is it a great album um no i don't think it is i think there are elements of it that are but what did you two think i i instantly warmed to it uh i hadn't heard it before uh, this uh our search for this episode um yeah, and you can absolutely understand why it's held up to be uh, an important, important album. I, I think for you know the bands that were around at the time and all part of that that same movement, it's a very unique sound. There's a mix in in the songwriting. Some not as strong as others. It'd be fascinating to know at what point in during their early years the tracks were written and. We must talk about the production because it's such a shame. It uh, it really didn't bring out the best of, of the band. And uh, I think some of the songs could have been absolutely massive, given better production. Hell knows where the drums were recorded. Coal Cellar or something, I, I, I don't know. Um, they tried to make them sound the least like drums of, of any album, I think. Um, <laughs> but overall, uh, yeah, s- some highs, some lows, some really good tracks. I think there's some good songwriting on it. And yeah, you can hear the influences in Metallica uh, from the tracks on this album. That point you made about the offer they got from EMI and then they eventually went with Bronze, Dave Hogg, the drummer, laid the blame for that squarely at Hayborn's door. I mean, I think Hayborn pretty much ran this band, didn't he, with, with something of an iron fist. Yeah. And he, he said he was hanging out for a better deal. Hayborn was hanging out for a better deal. Hogg said EMI offered a deal, which the rest of the other two would have gladly accepted. Um, and Hayborn said no. And yeah, next thing you know, they'd been um, well and truly um, gazumped by me. And, and, and to be fair, Hayborn in interviews subsequently has said the other two wanted them to sign, wanted him to sign mm. the band to EMI, mm. and he didn't. And he said, "What's done is done. You can't look back and have regrets. Yeah, we are where we are." So yeah, I think uh, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, absolutely right. And it's interesting because it's um, well, I, I tell you, what, I, I put four things down. I was, I was thinking this through. I had four bullet points to sum this album up, which were. Bollocks production, as, as as Richard said. Love the bass playing. The bass playing on this is mm. off the scale. Shit vocals, and that was fun. There were my four bullet points. So it's a real – I mean, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, basically because there's a lot to like about it. They've packed a lot in here. Side one's a good deal better than side two. It does taper off quite markedly, I think. But it's funny, isn't it? I get a sense from Angel Witch. They were a live band first, a bit like Angel. In, in Angel Witch's case, we're almost contractually obliged to produce albums. 
And maybe that's why they've only done five in about half a century. And they're not happy with any of them. You know, they, they clearly weren't happy with this because of the production. They always give the impression that you won't get a sense of Angel Witch until you see them live, which I wouldn't know anything about because I've not seen them live. So I, I, I couldn't say anything. So, so Angel Witch, I think there's a lot of really good stuff on there. I've really enjoyed listening to it. And, and you just think, yeah, another, yet another Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, yet another band who, you know, had so much to offer and, um, you know, it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- this album is widely seen as the only important album that Angel Witch recorded. Mm. Uh, I think that says everything, doesn't it? Well, I had a, I had a little listen to the second one, and I and I, and I really didn't give it much. Um, and I and I and I think that was enough. It kicks off with Angel Witch, a song written by a then seventeen-year-old Kevin Hayborn and modified in the studio uh, for this album. And he wrote this when the band was called Lucifer with a different lineup. It's the least Angel Witch track on the whole album. Interestingly, I think. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it opens it up, and, and this is not a track that is a, re- is a fair representation of the nine tracks. Well, eight tracks, I think there's one that's very similar to this. Eight, eight of the tracks on this album are very different. It's got a really good hook line. It's got a great riff. It's got fucking awful gang vocals at the end of it. <laughs> the production limits this from the start, but let's put that to one side. In terms of the, the, the actual song, I love the explosive start. I love the pace. Straight away, it's so bass-driven, this album, yes. isn't it? It's so bass-driven. But I like the little guitar fills, nice bridge. I like the, the harmony vocals. Yeah, the chant crowd singing at the end is why, but I'll forgive them for it. it it's a really good opening track. Yeah, they just can't, they can't help but sound very South East London when they do that, can they? And it's, um, it's not great. I, I think it's brilliant. Dude, this is definitely, of that era, this is far more Diamond Head than Motorhead. This is really, really good music. And yeah, the bass line's brilliant. Uh, love the guitar lines. Um, it's pretty heavy. Nice darkness to that chorus. And that sort of, you know, darkness carries on through the album, doesn't it? It's a track I knew. It's the only track I knew off the album, only because I remember kids playing it at school. It was a, it was a big thing amongst, you know, the lads in in Denham, I wasn't one, um, but I, rem- I remember this song. They all swore by it, and it's um, yeah, great song. Still like it now. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right to to highlight the work of Kevin Riddles on it because it is the bass like bass stuff on this is is throughout the album is outstanding, and he he didn't stick around for album two. So uh, track two um, is Atlantis, which is subject matter is pretty much what you'd expect from the title. Um, now. Let's talk about Kevin Hayborn, his vocals, <laughs> because in some ways he kind of reminds me of Joe Elliott in the in that he can't sing, but there's a certain charm to the way that he performs. Some of the vocal performances are hideous and some of them work quite well. And I'm not entirely sure what I think about him. What I think on this track is that the, the vocals are dreadful, but... You know, there's something of the Tigers of Pantang in this. Hear a bit of Tigers in this track. I think it's got a relentless riff. And it's interesting, isn't it? As a three-piece, the bass, when it's not obviously a bass, it doubles as a rhythm guitar through this and through the rest of the album. So there are times they sound like a four-piece because they've utilised Riddle's bass to kind of amplify the sound. It's fine. It's fine. It's a good track. It's not a great track. They've called, they, they were a four-piece, weren't they, till just before recording it, weren't they? They had a rhythm guitarist called Rob Downing who, who was either That's quit right. or sacked. 
And there was quite a turnover of staff, wasn't there? Because Hog, Hog was the drummer on this and the drummer on the next album, but not in between because they had Dave Dufourie, yes. didn't they? How did that happen? And the, the other thing about, to answer your question about Hayborn singing, it, it doesn't split opinions. It shouldn't split opinions. It's just shit from start to finish. Um, I, I, I can't see any tracks in here that are improved by it. And again, five years down the line on the second album, when he's still in the band and he ain't the singer, I think he's probably been told, isn't he? So, you know. But I love this track. This is you can see his Sabbathness, can't you? You can see the Sabbath influence in yeah. um, in, in Hayborn with this powerful riff led, proper heavy metal. I think it's a great song. Yeah, and this is the first time I could hear the sounds of a future Metallica. The the little fills around the end of the chorus, the little sort of shuffles uh, between the instruments. I mean, that that's just classic uh, Metallica. Really good starts. They they start songs very very yeah. well. And it's interesting what you say about the second guitarist because there isn't enough guitar in this whole album. That with the production, it, it just it, it could have been so much more powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is why I say you know it's an important album, but it's not a great album. And you know we're we're finding out why production lack of depth in the instrumentation, um, and yeah, and the vocal performance um, all all kind of ultimately do for this album in terms of where it will rank in. The Hall of Fame. Um, track three is White Witch, which is a more straight ahead, I suppose, heavy metal, you know, new wave of British heavy metal. It's got that kind of Norbum gallop and run thing that Iron Maiden came and kind of appropriated for themselves and turned into their signature. Even has an Iron Maiden style breakdown in it, actually, in the middle. So, yeah, there's a lot of Maiden in this. And then it transitions into quite a doomy, heavy oppressive you know menacing track towards the end i actually quite like white witch but it is very straightforward uh, nothing wrong with straightforward i like it as well i, th- I think it's i think it's a really good number yeah um and again as richard said it's another really good start to a track that which you haven't kind of seen coming yeah it, it's it, when it goes a bit amateur dramatic it, it's yeah and there's a couple of Hay- hayborn strangles are a really tough listen um and there's a couple on this track Plus a very strange solo, wonderful bass work again. And um, I was thinking there was quite a bit of priest about the way Hayborn goes about it. Certainly his phrasing, rather than I mean, obviously he doesn't sound like Halford as such, but the phrasing of his of his singing. But yeah, apart from that silly little amateur dramatic bit, it's um, it's a good song. I like it. This is a song where the drums, uh, the production, of the drums really let it down. I mean, they're non-existent. Yeah, and and the cymbals don't sound like cymbals, um, and it's such a shame because. Yeah, it's not the strongest song on the album, but it's got, as you say, a really good gallop to it. The structure's good. I like that middle section, that slower tempo section, and and there's a really good finish to it. So there you go. That's that's track three. Track four is a track called Confused. In terms of the progression through the album, it's the most heavy metal track, I think, of the, the album so far. It's very heavy. There's a lot of this album that makes me think of them as a heavy version of Def Leppard because there's actually quite a lot of that Def Leppard style melody in it, but it's all beefed up and heavied up and, you know, kind of dripping with this kind of menace and obsession, uh, oppression. So I kind of quite like it because I like this era of Def Leppard as well. So having a really heavy 
version of Def Leppard's quite cool. And this, for me, is the best track of the album so far, yeah. but not the best track of the album. Yeah, I echo, echo that. I'm not confused. I think it's bloody brilliant. I'm getting a, that riff. I'm getting early accept with that riff as well. I think it's fantastic. A real, real goody, proper Nwobum track in it. Under three minutes, straightforward rocker, um, and it rocks. But yeah, my favourite track of the album so far as well. No, left me a bit cold, this one. Let's see if we can warm you up with track uh, <laughs> track five, because it warmed me up. Uh, I do like Sorcerers, I have to say. And the reason I like it, I think, is that it's almost like a sister track to Iron Maiden's Remember Tomorrow mm-hmm. uh, from, their, from their debut album. It's got that kind of slow, intense, quite melancholy, quite despairing vocal, which I think Hayborn actually does pretty yeah. well in this, if I'm being absolutely fair. And when it when it is all slowed down and when the pitch is, of the song is right, he pulls it off. So, yeah, that ticks a box. It's got this kind of really kind of brooding sense of loss um, and it builds and builds and builds. And, yeah, it, it's there's a sort of slightly epic feel to it that I quite like and which is kind of in keeping with what I think the band mm. are trying to achieve and pull off. Yeah, yeah, it, this yeah, this warmed me up. Oh, it's really well arranged. Got a classic again, a classic Nobum structure to it, hasn't it? Nice and atmospheric. And again, I mean, this is a good example. This would have been absolutely massive with better production. Mm-hmm. There's some yeah. really, really clever bits in it. I've been a bit unfair to to Mr. Hayborn, haven't I? Because there was one track where he did excel, and this is this one. And he, when he he sounds a bit Sean Harris in in that opening vocal that he repeats um, midway through the track. But what a riff to drop into, you know. Mm. As Richard says, produced well, you know that could thunder out your amps, couldn't it? There's some Sabbath in here. There's some prog in here. I can definitely hear loads of Diamond Head, and not just his voice. Um, and it's dark, you know. But it's also gold when it drops into that riff. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Also, it's not called Sorceress either. You know that, don't you? It's called Sorceress. Is it right? It's a misprint on the album cover. Can you fucking believe that? A printing mistake on the album cover. Can you imagine someone goes up to Lars Ulrich and says, <laughs> right, so the album's done, lads. It's going to sell a million. And don't worry about the track listing on the back where it says the four Norsemen. No one will notice. I mean, how does that even happen? Hayborn said, no, it's called Sorceress. And it's like, no one gives a toss. Well, I never knew that. There you go. There you go. So that closes out side one. You flip it over and we get a track called Gorgon. And again, this is heavy Def Leppard. I think like Joe Elliott, there's a certain charm to the vocal. It's not, it lacks range and it lacks technical ability for sure. But I quite like it in its own way. The structure's a little bit bitty, I think, almost as though they aren't quite sure where the the track needs to go uh, or how to transition from one mm. thing to the next. But I think it's good. I don't think it's great. But I think it's a, it's a good opening to side two. Yeah, it's good. some good gallops going through it. But the arrangement is it is jerky yeah. in the transitions between the bits of uh, the the song. And yeah, it's 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 all right. Right. Track two was the second single. Referenced it earlier. Uh, it's called Sweet Danger. Again, there's a lot of Iron Maiden in this. <laughs> uh, yeah, these are they're peers, aren't they? They're they're yeah. contemporaries. So ne- no one's stealing from anyone, I don't think. And as you yeah, as you mentioned, Steve, you know, Angel Witch supported them often. Um, 
yeah, in the run up to this album and beyond. So I think that's a fair amount of mutual respect, probably. This is the other track that isn't, I think, truly indicative of the style of the band. This is quite poppy by by comparison to everything else. But yeah, more echoes of Def Leppard for me. This is this is almost like uh, when the walls came tumbling down. I don't like this very much at all. I don't like the chorus either. It just it's quite flaccid. I think a little bit flabby. Not not bothered about this. Yeah, I thought it was quite punky in style. It sounded to me like one of the first songs they wrote. Yeah. I mean, he's also a pretty good songwriter in terms of you know, what he's producing age 17. But yeah, this does sound like the first song <laughs> he ever did. It just hasn't got the sophistication of the others on the album. Okay, I, I, th- I think I agree with that. I think it's it's um, it's a bit of fluff, really, in the middle of side two, isn't it? Um, but then we come to Freeman. Now, Steve, you said you thought the album kind of tailed off in the in the second act. I'm not sure it does. I I actually think the two my favourite two tracks of the album are actually on this side of it. I think the first side is more consistent, certainly, but I like Freeman. I think it's so knobbum, you could put a denim jacket on it and spray it with patchouli oil. It's got an acoustic intro, sprawling epic soundscape, check. Yeah, I like this. This is this is absolutely knobbum. Like, Tell me I'm wrong. Well, no, you're not wrong, and maybe that's why I'm not that fussed. I don't um, – uh, th- this is a misstep to me. I don't, I'm don't. i not bothered about this at all. I do like Angel of Death. I'll share your enthusiasm for that one, but this is just a bit of a plodder, if I'm honest. And pretty out of character, I thought, with, with, within the rest of the album. You know, I was quite happy with them carrying on doing what they were doing with the likes of Atlantis and Confused and that. This just is – you know, not even, not even riddles can save this one, I don't think. I'm more with Mark on this one, I think. Uh, I like the mood, the emotion, much better arranged. I think they're they're good at this type of song. I like the end solo, good big finish. Yeah, step up again for me. And I think they maintain it with the penultimate track on the album, which, as Steve says, is called Angel of Death. It's not as good as <laughs> the proper angel. First thing I've put. <laughs> 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 but but if I had to pick my track of the album, which I am going to have to do at the end of this, this would just about steal it. It's got a fabulous circular riff, relentless kind of soaring and brutal. And if you were ever in any doubt about Kevin Hayborn's kind of loyalty to the Sabbath cause, it's all here because this is very, very Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Master of reality era Black Sabbath. This is, oh, fantastic. I, I think this is a great track. This is yeah no this is this is my second favourite track of um, of all time that's called Angel of Death I really really like it um, <laughs> <laughs> there's so many occult references through this album you think right these, these boys are you know real devil worshippers and Hayborn said nah it's nothing to do with that it was a good subject to write about instead of writing about birds all the time that was his that was, that was the songwriting process I think this is fantastic I think this is a really really good finish to the album. I know it isn't, but you know what I mean. Yes, agree. Again, some lovely gallop. Um, that main riff is super. And oh, please, the production, the production, production. Yeah. And bear in mind, we're listening to the remastered version, yeah. so you know uh, we're not even listening to the original vinyl. If you want references to devil worship and sacrifices, well, we've got bags of those coming up. But before we get to that, we've got the final track on the album, which is an instrumental. I mean. 
if you're going to put an instrumental like this on the album, it shouldn't be the last track. How much better would we all have felt if Angel of Death had ended the album? Mm. Yep. Whereas you just kind of feel a bit indifferent to um, to Devil's Tower. I put decent little instrumental. I didn't forward it. I let it play. Yeah. Uh, but it's a, it's just, a, again, another weird add-on. Yeah, no, I did the same. I think it's an angel theme I, I didn't get at all. But this, if they'd have squeezed this somewhere into the album, I wouldn't have seen it as misplaced necessarily. But at the end, it's, yeah, pointless. So there you go. That is 1980s Angel Witch by Angel Witch. Uh, highs and lows, gents. Uh, Steve, let's start with you. Sorceress is my high. Um, absolutely love Sorceress. And I've got to say it. It's a tough call. It's free man or sweet danger. Yeah, sweet danger. Wasn't bothered about that at all. Yeah, I'm with Steve on sweet danger. It's a tough call between Sorceress and the title track. I think I'm still going to give it to the title track. I think it's iconic. Uh, well, I wouldn't disagree with it being iconic. It's not my track of the album. My track of the album is Angel of Death. And I think it's a clean sweep, unfortunately, for the low, which is Sweet Danger. There you go. That's it. Done. Two albums down, one to go. Prepare the altar of sacrifice because, ladies and gentlemen, Death Angel are in the building, Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Yes, The Ultraviolence by Death Angel. There are a few noteworthy things to say about this debut album from these Bay Area Thrashers. Well, two things, really. The first, and I still find it amazing, is that it was produced by the fair hand of Davy Vane, of all people. And now I can see Vane being a talented producer because so much talent oozes out of his band and the songwriting he's got in there. So no, no, no truck with Vane as a producer. I just wouldn't have had him down for this sort of stuff. You know, this is full-on thrash. Let's make no bones about that. But there you go. So Vane was at the decks and in charge of basically a bunch of kids. And he also produced their follow-up album, Frolic Through the Park. So the band didn't have a bad word again to say about him. And they were full of praise for him. And then they were signed by a lecturer and Max Norman was assigned to take care of their third album. So this band was a big deal at the end of the 80s. It really was. But probably more noteworthy than the Vane involvement and... It's just the age of these kids. I mean, it's just astonishing. <laughs> the drummer, Andy Gallion, was 14 when this album was... When, he was nine when the band formed. Two of the band members were at school when this was released. All five were teenagers, as I say. Now, we, we, we cannot and we will not factor in their age when we mark it because, you know, we scored these things, flaws and all, no mitigating factors. But as a point of conversation... It's fucking extraordinary. I mean, it's seriously <laughs> impressive, you know, what they turned out. I always championed Flotsam and Jetsam as being an example of one of those young bands that were far more mature than, than you would have thought. Um, Michael Gilbert was 17. But you're thinking, you know, when Doomsday for the Deceiver came out, but you're thinking, you know, 17, he's an old man in this band. It's just astonishing. <laughs> so just a few quick facts. Um, Death Angel, there were four cousins and a second cousin of Filipino descent from the Bay Area in San Francisco. As I say, Galleon hadn't even turned 10 when they were formed. Um, they released a couple of demos showcasing their love of metal, old-school metal, um, the first demo. Um, and then the second demo, which was called Killers One, was the one It featured three tracks, all of which went on this album. That was the one that got them on the radar of Enigma. And that's the label they went with with the first album, Ultraviolence, April 23, 1987, recorded in three days. 
um, in June 1986, um, so 10 months before it was released. And I think, Mark, you know the reason why, the delay. No. Oh, okay. I think it's a legal thing to do with children. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I thought you kind of presented it as the, that you'd seen something on it, and I think that's what it was. So the, the label, as I say, it was all under the Enigma banner, Restless in the USA, under one flag over here. 45 minutes long, as I say, David Vayner produced it, did it at Banquet Sound Studios in California. And their next album, as I say, was called Frolic Through the Park. The band, as I say, all these kind of Filipino kids. Um, Mark Osagueda on vocals, Rob Cavastani on lead guitar, um, the Pepper Brothers, Gus on guitar and Dennis on bass and Andy Galleon on drums. Safe to say it didn't chart anywhere. Sales info, I've no idea, but it is... Um, it's well regarded amongst the thrash brethren, but yes, yeah, so as I say, we need to judge this on on the quality of the um, of the album rather than the age of the protagonist, and we will. It's consistent. I will say that there are no classic tracks on here. Very little that's really above the very good. They weren't metallic. They could easily become Metallica clones, and they didn't. They they, they didn't choose that route, even though they knew Kirk Hammett very well. He'd helped them out with one of the demos, um, but they went their own way. And you know, if you want thrash metal that's just going to beat you into submission then they do it then they absolutely do that you know this this is they've got the riff down to a fine art it's heavy as fuck it's ever so hostile as i say there is some good stuff on here it was never really a go-to album for me um i actually forgot i had it on vinyl i, I just found it in a in a cupboard last week when i knew i was going to do it not played it for years they do like technical they do like to do technical and when it doesn't quite come off um it can sound quite clumsy and there's a lot of links in here and bridges that just don't quite work. But listen, you know, bands far older than them were putting out far shittier stuff than this. I like it because I love the aggression. If you just want 45 minutes of really unthinking, unquestioning thrash, I, this is perfect. It really is. It's, it's spot on. It, it won't win awards um, and it won't threaten our, It won't threaten Led Zep 4, who was ever at the top of our Hall of Fame. But <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's, it's, it's good fun. And, and listen, I love my thrash, and I think there's some good stuff on it. What about you two? It's amazing, isn't it, their ages? Absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I'm presuming because they were so young and fit, that's why they can play so fast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. I mean, yeah, I mean throughout, there's some, this is proper, proper speed metal, isn't it? Mm. And my goodness, they've got good chops in terms of their technique. When I first listened to this, I didn't know about their ages, and it sounded up there with not quite in your probably your, your anthrax and your metallicas but certainly in terms of those the, the, the other bands that were around at the time and there's some ups and downs there's one track on this i keep going back to and because i think it's absolutely epic and i'm still discovering it <sighs> so yeah um it's been a proper proper good listen yeah, like you, Richard, I wasn't aware of the ages when I first stuck this on. I remember uh, the beginning of the week sending your, you both a, a WhatsApp saying, loving Death Angel, and I didn't know how old they were at all. So I was judging it as an adult band, uh, which is how I have scored it. The one thing I would say is it's amazing the difference a year makes because when they recorded this, they were absolutely in step with everything that was going on at the time. 86, I think I'm right in saying, was Doomsday for the Deceiver. It was also, I think, uh, Overkill. Um, I think that was the, the album that we reviewed back in episode six, the name of which I've completely forgotten temporarily. 
Um, but that was out as well. So, you know, it was absolutely in step with with the way the thrash movement was going. A year later, when it actually comes out, it sounds a bit dated compared to everything that was going on at that point. So it's easy for us to, to, to kind of um, score it and judge it on its own merits because you've got the benefit of 30-odd years of intervening time. But at the time, it must have seemed quite odd to, to hear an album that the world had moved on from. And, and it's only because there was that 12-month delay in getting it out. Strange, but I, I've loved it. Really enjoyed it. I, there are bits of it I really don't care for. Um, it started off badly for me. The first track, you know, we'll get to that. But the first track was like, oh, Jesus Christ, what's he picked now? But then it, it kind of improved rapidly from there. And if you want a measure of it, if you gave me the choice of having to listen for the rest of my life to this or Doomsday, I'd listen to this. Right. Right, I'm fucking coming round. I knew, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> How can you say that? Oh, because it's kind of on my ears. Seriously? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I yeah. prefer this to Doomsday for the Deceiver. Yeah. No, I think there's more variety on Doomsday. I've always said that, but um, I've always said that, but no one's listening. No, I agree with you, but I like I like it. When a riff starts, I'm quite happy for it not to stop. Yeah. And if you do that ten times over, I'm very ha- I'm a very happy boy. Yeah. Well, it's not quite ten; it's eight in this case, and you could argue it's seven actually, because um, they yet again for the third time of asking this evening um, in this episode, we've got a, an odd, extraordinarily odd final track. But but the first seven are very good. There's a there's a four on the first side which are Evil Priest, Voracious Souls, and Kill as One. And they are preceded by this track that um, Mark didn't like. And I kind of I kind of get it, because it's not one of my highest scores either. It's called Thrashers, and it pretty much does what it says on the tin, if I'm honest. an intro into a, a, well, a, a really good riff actually but done at blinding pace um, some real flotsam and jetsam backing vocals I think you can also hear um, clear early kind of Metallica and Megadeth influences as well 
I'm getting a real sense of, if I was going to name check any of their albums, it would be Kill Em All and Killing Is My Business. There's a real sense of both those two albums in a lot of their work. After four minutes, you're kind of wondering how they make this run to seven minutes 12, which is what it checks in at, which is, but then you get a, you know, a bass intro. This is what I'm saying about not quite understanding the brief of writing good songs. I mean, there's so many kind of messy juxtapositions and segues and bridges which don't quite work. But, you know, fuck it. You know, they, they're, they're kids. They're having fun. Let them get on with it. And there's also one really wild and fairly out-of-control solo from Rob Cavastani, who does love an out-of-control solo. They are a hallmark of this album. So this is Thrasher's. I'm with Mark. It's, it's by some distance not the best track on this album. I think you might go lower than that, but I think it's a, I think it's a good start. I think it's a, it's a good, it's a good, powerful, hostile. Let's. This is what we're about. Start. We'll come on to it, I'm sure. But this is a vocalist who does split opinion. I've, I was amazed. There is a school of thought that says he's absolutely brilliant, and there's a a complete polar opposite that says he's absolutely awful. So we'll find out where you two sit with that. That school of thought, incidentally, the, the school of thought that thinks he's fucking brilliant are the unthinking thrash heads. The school of thought who don't are anyone who appreciates music because it's not, it's, not yeah. it's not a great singer, no. Well, you'll, you'll doubtless have far more to say about Evil Priest, um, which is track two, which is, I mean, it pretty much mirrors the start of track one. Um, you kind of know the pace you're getting, but then they brilliantly change the pace down a fraction from fucking breakneck to sort of more of a chug. It's a fast chug, don't get me wrong, but the other big difference with this track is that the bridges and the change-ups all over it, they're just better. Um, They're done faster, they're done better, um, but they never quite lose it, even when Cavastani comes in with one of his nut solos, and and they keep the pace going. Good track, much better than the first one. Yeah, definitely a step up. I like the verses. That break in the middle, I don't think you can get a heavier bass, can you? I mean, that that's just absolutely rib-splitting. And then the speed up in the middle, uh, I think, is sublime. I thought it was a very nice touch. And, yeah, the solo's too out of control for me. And, and at the end, um, you're, it's, it keeps you guessing. Is You're never quite sure where it's going to go. It's, uh, so it's quite good fun. It's awful when we kind of reference other bands, isn't it? But it's, it's just to try and give you listening an idea of where this band sits in in sound rather than suggesting there's any sort of borrowing or stealing going on but i'm getting a lot of mortal sin okay uh, which is a good thing you know it's not a bad thing i really do like it when they slow it down um and they kind of just drop into that riff although there is a sense i, I do kind of get the sense of them being in the studio because it gets progressively quicker, doesn't it? Quite quickly, it gets progressively. And they, I, I do kind of get a sense that they're all going, look, I, I can't, no, I can't hold it. I can't hold it. I've got to go, I've got to go. And off they go. And it's, yeah, it's back into that very, very kind of speedy riff. But that middle section where they slow down, yeah, all for that. Yeah. Yeah, so I like this a lot. They do carry themselves along, but they were only in the studio for three days, weren't they? So, I mean, they must have been... Had to get it over they, quickly. They had to hurry. <laughs> See the pilot yeah. stuff, yeah. <laughs> track three uh, is just a brilliant banger, it really is. This is called Voracious Souls, my track of the album when I first bought it 30-odd years ago. It's still, ace. It's still very messy in a lot of ways, but um, such a lot of fun. Anyone who doesn't know this band, just expect the unexpected. You know, the riffs are no nonsense, but... They still fuck around with, you know, bridges and hooks and, you know, simple drum rolls or guitar lines. They just don't shy away from, you know, fiddling with any of this stuff, which 
can make it sound a bit muddled, as I say. But anyway, I love Voracious Souls. At this point, this is my track of the album. I, I have to say that the the lyrics are hilarious. I mean, absolutely hilarious. In the night, in the circle of death, they congregate to hold a feast. There lies a body in the centre of the ring. Each human soon becomes a beast. I mean, it's it's not deep stuff. But yeah, love the riff. Love I love the structure. That takes me to my happy place. Really does. Um, so yeah, track of the album so far. Yeah, like it. Super heavy riff. Loads going on. Then again, there are these little surprises like that. There's that little sort of little melodic couple of seconds mm. and before it then completely shocks you again. Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite cleverly arranged. Again, when I was listening to this the first time, I was thinking, oh, these are these are good musicians. These are really good musicians. Can, can I just share another share another lyric with you? The final incision, how, having now been complete, as these get this ominous demons. Uh, as these ominous demons start to eat, a strident hum lurks through the room, the bloody bath to set them free as they fulfil their long-awaited dream, a bloody orgy of intense ecstasy. What's wrong with any of that? <laughs> Paul Simon couldn't have written it better. And side one finishes with Kill As One, and off we go again, another canter, followed very quickly by Gallop. Is that the right way around? Canters go into gallops, don't they, Mark? You know your horses. Um, they do, and it's um, and it's a great shout out chorus. Not complicated, just a crowd pleasing punch the air, punch your friend, kill as one. Yeah, so flotsam and jetsam. I love it. Guess that's why I like them. Brilliant. <laughs> Which is probably also why it's one of my weak tracks on the <laughs> album. It's uh, it's just too mindless for me. I'm afraid. <laughs> this of course this of course was the demo the title of the demo the first track the first of those three on the demo that uh, alerted enigma you know got them the gig so uh, one of their one of their earlier tracks and produced by kirk hammett wasn't it he had a hand in it certainly yeah I, am i right in thinking that this appeared on metal for mothers it was this was one. it this track yeah so that shows how old yeah. it was because i think that was a, a year before the demo i think um i'm yeah. pretty sure it was killer's one yeah yeah it's a much more straightforward thrash isn't it? I can understand why Steve likes it. Yeah, it, it's all right. It's okay. So there you go. So that's side one. We flip the disc. And what better way to start side two than with a 10-minute, 33-second instrumental? This is the title track, um, The Ultraviolence. <laughs> it's the title track. It's generally very quick, but with pl- well plenty of layers. Christ, they've got 10 minutes to fill. The problem with it, as I see it, is that it, it needs one or two of these riffs, and there's a lot of riffs in this, to be kind of over and above the ordinary to sustain your interest for such a long period of time. And it is quite a long period. It's quite a demanding track. And I don't think they ever really hit that brief. There are points on this track in particular when it does sound like five kids have just been let into the music room, plugged everything in, and said, we're going to have a laugh. You don't actually get the first guitar solo until about six minutes, played out over one of the track's better riffs. It's hard to get a 10-minute instrumental right, and I go back to their age when they're, you know, Davey Vane would have tried his best, but I'm not sure this this is brilliant. Every time I listened to this, I thought, I must pay attention. I must listen to this properly. (laughs) And I then suddenly become aware that six and a half minutes have passed, and it just washed over me. I didn't dislike what I think I heard, but it just became wallpaper. And, and I find it really difficult to stay engaged with it. So 
there are bits of it that are really, really good. And there's bits of it that I just don't remember. <laughs> I don't think that's just my age. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, it is ultraviolence, isn't it? Just, I, I think this is absolutely fucking mad, but absolutely epic. <laughs> this sort of, Progressive thrash metal. I'm. St- this is the one. I'm still working it out. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find it absolutely intriguing. I mean, where do you start? As you say, there's so many movements, so many themes. And there's power, speed, the tempo shifts. I still haven't listened to this enough. But already, I think in terms of creativity, it's off the scale. This is how I feel with Tower. It's exactly the same. What I would say is you think about the great metal instrumentals, they're far more accessible, aren't they? And we're obviously thinking about Call of Cthulhu, yeah. Orion, the Jones, things like that, from thrash bands. They're just not thrash tracks yeah. as such, are they? Um, and they're shorter. But Call of Cthulhu just feels because you can breathe in it, can't you? It's, it's not mm-hmm. a, it's not, it's not speed metal. That's the problem, isn't it? No. This is pure speed metal. As, as much as they they mess around with it, and they do, it's yeah. as Richard says, an incredibly complex track. It's just, it's just. I repeat, it's ten minutes thirty three seconds, and it's an instrumental. But it, it does what it says on the tin. It is a track called "The Ultraviolence," and yeah, by the end of it, you have had every shade whopped out of you. And how brave of a band of teenagers yeah. to put a ten and a half minute instrumental on their debut album. I, I think fair play to them. Absolutely yeah. fair yeah. play. Agreed. And 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 credit to whoever sat in the boardroom at Enigma and said, "Yeah, that's okay, lads." As well, because I mean, they yeah. could easily have said, "Uh, uh-uh, <laughs> that ain't going to happen." But um, you know, I wonder which executive in his tie and glasses sat there and went, "Well, where's the single?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can shorten it to yeah. nine minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's all. Right. Can we can we have the three minute thirty yeah. version? Yeah. From the ultraviolence, we we go to Mistress of Pain, which is the um, the shortest shortest track on the shortest proper track off the album. And this is what I love about this: you got a good riff into a great riff, and I love it when that happens. Um, that always makes you feel good. I mean, nothing I've not heard, you know, over the previous five tracks, certainly the first four tracks on um, on side one. But as I say, that, that's probably my problem with the album. Technically excellent, um, and they can thrash. And there are times when. You know, unthinking thrash is is no questioning thrash is absolutely perfect. You know, Creator's Endless Pain is one of my favourite all-time albums, but I wouldn't listen to it very often because it's just unquestioning, very, very simple thrash. And that's kind of pretty much what this is. You know, back in the day, I loved it, but I'm, I'm not back in that day anymore. <laughs> I am very definitely in that day. I am very, very happy with this track. This is the track of the album. Uh-huh. It's a bit anthraxy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit anthraxy. And it's got a delicious bloody riff yeah. that they drop into. And it's right up my strata. Are we ever going to des- describe Death Angels being hooky? Probably not. But this is as close as they get to being hooky. So, yeah, I, I like this. It's, it's, uh, it, meets, it meets my ears. Oh, that's interesting. Not, not so much for me. I... I it's a classic where I love that riff at the start. That it's a brilliant heavy riff, and they do go back to it. They do, but in just in the, the, but in two shorter bursts. If there was a bit more of a balance between the speed bit and that uh, heavy bit, yeah, better. But too much speed. I remember. 
I remember a conversation that you and I had, Richard, when we were listening to Bleeding Me for the first time on Load. Yeah. And and we we because it was quite predictable, there's that bit where they drop into where Metallica drop into a very similar riff to the one that's on this. And it is it is criminally short. But that's isn't that the genius? It, it leaves you just wanting more of it, and that was what we said then: was that oh my god, that's just such a good riff, and that it doesn't go on long enough. But actually, that's what that's almost what makes the track, and that's what makes the track for me okay. here. I think. Yeah. Final death is the best track on this album. Let me just make that clear right away. This is this is kind of a, the, the amalgam of everything that's gone before and one or two killer riffs, you, plenty of weird breaks and bridges, but they're kind of more tolerable here. Osegueda's vocal range in this is, is excellent. There's a sort of punishingly slow sort of doom-filled segue into the finish that I'd, I'd like to have heard more of, I must admit. But by any measure, this is, this is a great thrash track, I think. Very close to being my favourite track on the album. Very, very close. Because it has all of the same qualities. <laughs> As you know, I'm not a huge fan of speed metal, but this is a fairly brutal pl- pace, but it's controlled aggression, whereas there's a lot of out-of-controlled aggression yeah. on the album. Yeah, I like the start of this. Uh, um, I do like their starts, uh, similar to Angel, which um, uh, the the song starts are very, very strong. Yeah, and this is this is good. It does jump around a bit. Again, a pretty good proper finish to the album. Yeah, it, it jumps around with the sort of sanctity of a, of a more consistent riff that they kind of stick with, which is, as Mark's made the point, those last two tracks, they are kind of almost sticking with a riff more, which they perhaps should have done earlier in the album, instead of just, you know, jumping here, there and everywhere. There is, as I say, one final track on the album, which is called IPFS which may or may not mean intense puke feeling syndrome. But what is for sure is that it's 1 minute 56. It's a little acoustic into some big chords and it's utterly pointless. Neither do I, but I'd still rather listen to this than Thrashers or um, Killers 1. So it's the, th- it's the third worst, worst song on the album for me. <laughs> It's like a little Batman run, isn't it? It's quite fun. Yeah, same comment as Devil's Tower. It's a semi-interesting instrumental, and I did always play it. Mm. And I guess at two minutes long, we'll have to mark it. So um, factor that in, boys, when you're uh, giving me your highs and your lows. My high is Mistress of Pain, uh, narrowly from Final Death, and my low is Thrashers. Richard? And for me, if we're marking it, IPFS will be my low. If it hadn't been that one, then probably Killer's one. And, yeah, my high is the title track, The Ultraviolence. <laughs> a complete mad, mad epic. Fantastic. Yeah, IPFS for me and Final Death is, um, is the high point of Death Angels debut album the ultraviolence part three of our albums for this episode um which was either things that fly or angels and towers call it what you will we have done angels debut album angel witches debut album death angels debut album and now we're going to go and um score them and see where they fall in the hall of fame reviews complete 
initializing rating process. And let's start, as usual, with the earliest of the three albums. That was my choice. Angel's self-titled debut from 1975. And Steve, you scored it a 6.5. Obviously, definitely still getting used to it. Uh, Mark uh, with a 7.72. And I, not surprisingly, gave it the highest uh, score of the three of us with a 7.92. And that gave Angel an overall total of a shade over 7.38. Mark, how did Angel Witch do? They did all right, I think, probably as I suspected at the beginning. It's an important album uh, contextually, but not a great album musically, um, something that uh, you and Steve Richard um, broadly agreed on. Steve gave it a 7.2, you gave it a 7 dead. I gave it a 7.8, uh, liked it a bit more than you two for an overall Average score of 7.33. Steve, Death Angel. Yeah, I don't think anyone would ever say the Ultraviolence is an important album, but it was fun nonetheless, um, and it scored all right. Richard gave it the lowest mark, 6.93. I gave it 7.125, and you gave it 7.56 for a grand total of 7.2. So all three albums in the 7.273 bracket and let's see where that leaves them in the Hall of Fame. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. 174 albums are in this thing now, which is brilliant. Topped as it is by uh, Back in Black by ACDC, Ride the Lightning Metallica and Led Zeppelin 4. And let's just say that these three albums on this episode are not threatening those. Indeed, that they're outside the top 100 which doesn't mean to say they've not been a fun listen, but they've not done that well in our league table of brilliance. So The Ultraviolence by Death Angel is 122. Angel Witch by Angel Witch is 109. Angel by Angel is at 101. Thoughts? Uh, yeah, but I, I'm not surprised by any of that. I think probably I expected um, the ultraviolence to do slightly better, maybe, maybe not. I don't know, 122. That's actually not bad in a list of 174 when you see, you know, um, when you see some of the stuff that's below them. I mean, fuck's sake, Bass Out of Hell, below it. Um, I know that surprises you, Steve, because you obviously loved that album. But also, you know, you've got things like, I think, Peace of, is Peace of Mind below it as well? So, you know, uh, they've done all right, haven't they? And Angel, yeah, that was my, I think I, that was my favourite track, uh, favourite album of the night, really. So, yeah, all good, all good. The one observation I'd make is there's obviously, it's point one of a point between these three albums tonight. Mm. This section of the Hall of Fame is so crammed that that point one of a point between the three of them spreads them out over 22 places. Another enjoyable yep. week. If you haven't checked out any of these three albums, uh, then please do so because they are definitely, definitely worth a listen. Um, but there we go. That wraps up episode number 58 about flying things and angels and towers and we really, really hope that you'll join us again soon for the next episode. All music clips featured in the Enter Sad Men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary, and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of UK and international copyright law. To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show 
by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service.